Hi, Tali. I'm super glad uh, to have you on the podcast uh, for the first time. Uh, actually, not the, the second time because I messed up the recording. Um, can you uh, introduce yourself a bit to uh, uh, the audience and uh, tell us a bit about your, your background? Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm Tali Remenick, data scientist, certified professional forecaster and CEO here at Granularity. My background is as a management consultant at Accenture, where I built and deployed massive AI use cases for organizations across North America. And one of the challenges that I was seeing at one point during COVID, which a lot of people can relate to in the forecasting and planning space, was the ability to forecast given the market changes. So we're now moving from a demand uh, push to a demand pull environment where consumers really know what they want and what they're looking for. And it's our responsibility as organizations to really be able to keep up with consumer demand. And that's a shift that we saw during COVID and that has progressed since. So here at Granularity, we focus on demand forecasting for those consumer shifts. Cool, cool, cool. And um, uh, can you explain us a bit, um, um, like uh, in, in current supply chain, like post COVID, what's actually are like the challenge that you see? You, you talked about uh, uh, a pull versus a push uh, motion, um, but what's our, what are the challenges that uh, are, are visible? So in the new digital economy, consumers. Um, has escalated the way consumers shop both um, in store and online. And consumer preferences are shifting rapidly. The challenge we've seen, a major challenge, is that ERPs are not built for this new digital economy. And they work fantastic for a lot of products, but there is a lot of products that are really being impacted by the way consumers are now shopping. So we need a way to be able to keep up with demand patterns that are fundamentally different and our ERP systems aren't able to do that at this point. Okay, cool. Uh, can you, um, um, can you uh, uh, dive a bit more about like um, why exactly the ERP are not made for, uh, for that? And what's the, what actually is the missing pieces? Because uh, in, in my case, in my experience, uh, more on the like uh, outsourcing side than the demand side. Um, I've seen a similar setup where um, like a, a, a simple things like keeping all the prices for uh, an RFQ that you're doing is actually not possible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive because if you had all of this information, then you could take more better decisions in the future. But like some of the ERPs are just made so that you have one price and then you, you flatten it. But in your case, on the demand side, what exactly is the, the missing pieces here? The uh, models that planners use for consumer demand are struggling to keep up with the way that the economy is changing. So if I'm a planner using an ERP system, um, I typically select the model that builds out my plan. And the challenge is those models don't take into account a lot of factors that are happening in the external environment. So they're just, they're called univariate models, which means they're only looking at um, one variable, which is the units sold. But really there's so many variables that impact demand. And there's many more now. So 
we need our tools and usually AI helps with this, but that's getting into the solution, but we need tools that can actually look at the thousands of variables that impact the way consumers shop. For example, if we want to be very concrete, um, there's a huge company that sells jackets, which we all know, but essentially their demand planning model was, wasn't able to even take into account seasonality. Like each season, if I have a new type of jacket that I didn't have in my system before, my system won't be able to predict for that because that jacket only exists starting two months ago. I didn't have that jacket last year. So there's not, it, those tools don't really work for seasonal products because they're used to, you know, modeling something that we've been selling for 10 years. So it has all that historical data and doesn't work well for seasonal products. That, um, we're getting completely off track here. <laughs> I think, uh, um, uh, I think we're touching on a fundamental problem. Um, and I just realized it a bit, um, a lot of these tools, especially like in bigger organization are kind of like made by huge corporation, which have absolutely no incentive of like, like making their software go and then change, uh, uh, fast. Uh, we can think about like the ACP of the words and, and whatnot. Usually it's difficult to implement and then it's difficult to modify. Um, but uh, they're really made, made like as a bedrock software. Um, it, it like uh, uh, you're saying it, it, it's still like uh, made for the reality of 10 years ago um, because that's what the software uh, is, is made for and can't really change past that point. It's too fast for the software to keep up. Um, and it's kind of a similar thing that I've seen with supply chain management is that uh, like the, the ERPs are made for like a buyer market, um, uh, a buyer market yeah. where things are not that complicated and then you just are to have to optimize for price. Uh, and that's pretty much it. But like it, all of the change from like, uh, the, the COVID period and, and whatnot, there's nothing like you, you look at the software at, at this point and then before it's the same thing. And the reality is that it's very hard to change a software that big, uh, with that history is, will be difficult to change. Um, so, uh, it's much easier to have that bedrock software augmented by some, yeah, exactly. uh, some other module, I completely agree. some other module, because that module don't have to have like all of the backbone, uh, yep. needed for this massive operation to run. It just need to do this thing well. So this thing can change fast, but the other thing cannot. Um, yeah, and, just... and the products, it still works really well. The ERP system still, you know, can model really well products that are consistent. It's just we're seeing more of our portfolio of products being yeah. completely um, inconsistent, whereas before maybe, you know, 10 to 20% of our products were uh, had variable demand and then 80% were quite predictable. Now we're seeing more uh, 40, 60 yeah. depending on obviously what industry you're in um, and what domain your products are in. So now we really need to focus more on improving the accuracy of those 30 to 40% of products that are seeing variable demand, because if we are inaccurate on those, then our margin across the board is completely off. And that was a challenge we were seeing during COVID and it is still continuing. So what we focus on is improving the accuracy of those 30 to 40% of products 
um, that are seeing completely inconsistent uh, and wacky demand and helping you understand what is the source of that inconsistent demand. Okay, cool. Love it. I think we're getting some, some uh, cool insight already. Um, yeah, can you uh, provide a bit of an example of like uh, um, uh, some type of organization that are properly leveraging demand forecasting, like in, in your opinion? I think you have one. Uh, yeah, I think you have a good one. Yeah. So in terms of demand forecasting, there's an organization that um, sells bath and body type of products. And what they do, what they've started to do is use demand forecasting as a competitive advantage by meeting weekly. So they do weekly planning as opposed to monthly planning. And in those weekly planning meetings, they bring together stakeholders from marketing, from their website team, from their um, ad spend team. And they all come together each week and they look at the plan and they look at what types of scents are selling much worse than they expected and which ones are doing better. And they actually adjust their inventory planning based on what's happening week over week. Um, and they're still doing it far out, but they do have a little bit more of that flexibility. And because of that, they're seeing a 10 to 20% higher margin than their competitors. That's... Uh, yeah, so the flexibility is a really key competitive advantage. And that's why we're seeing more move to weekly planning review meetings. Yeah. Um, you made me uh, uh, I remember a, a, a discussion I had with uh, someone at the Bombardier, actually, um, that told me like uh, exactly that same motion happening at the, not at the demand phase, but at the, the outsourcing phase, where um, as things get more and more complex, um, the only, the, the best thing you can have and do is work on your communication um, internally with the internal yeah. team in order to pinpoint exactly what the motion, the motion and the movement is, especially if like the stuff are moving like on a weekly basis. Um, if the stuff are like, like a big trends that happens over a quarter. I mean, it's not that uh, relevant to, to have these type of a uh, uh, meeting, but like focusing on communication when things are moving fast is absolutely critical. And this is how you're going to be able to figure out uh, what actually you need to tweak and change. Um, yeah. It's about those little tweaks. And I think that's one thing we're working on with customers is, knowing what levers we can pull because yes there's not going to be you know a million things we can do in a short period of time but there's probably two to three key levers that we have to pull whether that's you know pricing promotional strategies or you know adjusting 10 percent of our budget within season that looks different for every single organization but the very first step is having meetings <laughs> So, you know, I, I mean, that's unfortunate because there's a lot of trend towards less meetings, but in this case, to have that agility, there needs to be cross-functional meetings that are happening in yeah. which we say, what levers are we pulling and why? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's funny because like uh, <laughs> uh, you eliminate all meetings, including like the super critical ones. Um, but yeah, at this point, it's... it's uh, it's uh, it's not having less meeting that matters. It's just like removing those that can be doing, done asynchronously. And um, I know that because I'm running a, a fully remote company, um, we do have meetings, but they are very <laughs> targeted meetings. Yeah. So if it's we like can... we're talking about these three, or we we have five metrics that yeah. we're all meeting about. 
one metric is from marketing, one metric is from supply, one metric from procurement, and we all know exactly those are the five things we're talking about. Yeah. Th- that's a, a productive meeting. <laughs> exactly. A cross-functional meeting is always very productive because especially like, especially if you're trying to fix uh, something or like you have a challenge that you have to tackle, uh, trying to do that in synchronously is like, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to take too long. Um, especially if it's time sensitive, you're much better to have people for 10 minutes, just like blitzing this through and then you move on and then you don't have to do status report meetings, but you can, ha- I can do that, uh, that, uh, uh, brainstorming meeting and then ideation. Can actually solve problems. Yeah, exactly. But okay. I think what we're trying to get to also is not finding problems after they've happened. Exactly. So we can't wait until the end of quarter to realize that our pricing was wrong or, you know, we're losing margin on something. We need to all move towards being able to be flexible and actually move as things are changing. That's beautifully well put. Um, that, that was, that was actually, uh, that was, that was beautiful. Uh, so, uh, um, uh, so now the question is like, it's kind of obvious, like uh, you do more communication and yes, your, your ERP system will not save you because it's too slow. It's made for, um, it's made for a slower type of environment. Um, why are organization, uh, not leveraging like the demand forecasting tool? A lot of it, so a lot of organizations are excited about implementing um, new processes and new capabilities, specifically around AI in demand forecasting. The challenge often is actually with adoption. And people like um, myself, like planners and forecasters, uh, being reluctant to adopt AI. So really, it's up to all of us as individuals to learn how AI works, what it Part of it is machine learning and, and how that impacts forecasting. And we talked a bit before between ourselves that, you know, machine learning fundamentally is very similar to what um, demand forecasters are already doing. It's emulating the same activities um, and underlyingly it's all statistical models, but we get scared because we don't really um, know, we feel like it's a black box. But there are a lot of resources and tools out there to start learning what is behind a lot of those black boxes. And I encourage a lot of the planners out there to start looking into that technology um, and just finding at least a couple of training resources on it. Okay. I I think you're touching on an interesting point and I want you to to make clear um, which part of the adoption are you uh, talking about here? Is it like the tool adoption or is it uh, um, uh, the whole concept that the tool are using adoption, like machine learning in general, or literally the technology? I'd say it's individual users on the ground being reluctant to use new tools because sometimes the tools can be wrong, which is completely a fair reason, um, at least in the forecasting side. So the recommendation I have for forecasters and planners listening to this is to go on the Institute of Business Forecasting. They have a lot of resources specifically around machine learning and understanding how AI and machine learning augment forecasting. And we all need to have that fundamental knowledge before we can use the tools. Okay. Okay. Perfect. 
So it comes down to not understanding what's behind the tool, Yeah, which is fine. I think that's a fair concern. Um, but there need to be resources. We all need to go out and get the knowledge we need to understand what's behind the tools. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I get that. Um, and it's a fair point also, because if like you get burned by the tool, because you thought you could do like that and actually like you didn't understand that there was this limitation, um, it's a, a fair reason, especially if like it's a machine learning model tool, um, which you have no idea how it works. Um, because it's not magic. Um, so, uh, you, and I understand the concern. I think that it's yeah. not magic. None of the tools are perfect. Um, but we as individuals need to challenge ourselves to understand what's behind them. That's the only way forward. So to that point, you're a big proponent of, um, um, upskilling. Um, uh, is it for this, is it for this reason to be able to have more adaption, therefore clearing that gap between uh, the, 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 the fastness of the market and what is actually needed by the team. Why are you so, uh, so uh, 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 such a big proponent of upskilling? Yeah, I would say that the biggest challenge we've seen to AI in demand forecasting is adoption. So leaders are really excited and actually leaders do invest in AI uh, tools and in building AI models. But the challenge always comes when there's a mismatch between the AI models that are built and the planners on the ground. Um, that is the biggest gap that we've seen. And oftentimes it's because the AI models that are built don't work the way they need to and the way that planners need them to. So in order to bridge that gap, um, we as planners need to upskill on AI. And then of course, people building the AI need to upskill on who their users are. And like, that's the only way we can find a middle ground between the two. Yeah, perfect. Um, love that. A tangential question. Um, um, uh, what's the place of observability uh, in, uh, in these type of models, especially for demand forecasting? Because you can have a wide range of uh, of uh, transparency in the, in a machine learning model, you have like the decision tree model that literally you can plot it and literally know what's up, and then you have like the deep neural network model where, like, it will take you a PhD level in order to figure out what each of the layers are doing. Um, what's what's your what's your your, uh, your 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 take on this on this topic, especially for demand forecasting? I went on a tangent here. <laughs> yeah, transparency, it depends on every single tool has their own way of explaining the models behind. Uh, one way we see is, is actually showing the data um, underlying and how what, what spikes have moved. So oftentimes the problem is we don't know. So we'll see a sales spike in our history and we have no idea where that sales spike is coming from. And then we just keep forecasting forward. Either we ignore it um, or we make some assumptions about it. What we do at Granularity is we actually bring in the data that helps you understand where that mm. spike came from so that you can say, hey, are we going to see that again? Like whether it's, maybe it's a weather change. Are we gonna see that weather change again? or not, if we expect that we are going to see that weather change again, then we can forecast it forward. A lot of the times we just ignore the yeah. spikes or the changes. 
And the, pro the problem is that in this market currently, outliers are extremely important. We need yeah. to understand our outliers. We can't just take them out. Okay, I love that. That's a, that's a really great answer. Uh, because like, you can always figure out which features that came into the model um, uh, had which and which impact. I was actually doing this uh, during my PhD. It was for brain data, but like, it was kind of the same, uh, same yeah, thing. Yeah, like it's, the features. It's fun. It's fun to know that you are able to have that much accuracy to do X, but it's even more fun to understand which the composition of the feature space actually led to that, because then you can focus and refine both the model, but also your understanding about what the, the heck is going on. Yeah. And that's exactly what, like our goal at granularity is to help you understand what's going on behind the data points, because a lot of us are just focusing on the final sales numbers yeah. without understanding what's behind them. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, funny things that come, for example, um, you know, sometimes it is just from promotional spend, but we've even seen the case where the ear going back to the ERP systems, you can't actually put in your promo to say like, we had a promotional period here. So you have to do that in Excel. Yeah. You have to go to Excel and say, this was a promotional period. And then I have to emulate that promotional period depends on the ERP systems, but there are some ERP systems that don't let you do that automatically. So you do it in Excel. There's also ones that don't even have pricing. So like the model just builds it without the price point. And I was talking to someone in grocery that was like, well, obviously the sale of strawberries is dependent on the price of the strawberries. <laughs> But the model doesn't show that. Yeah. It just goes by units. So I can't even have a multivariate model, which is simple economics. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> but, that's like... when I was like, okay, this is really a problem. <laughs> when I realized that the ERPs don't have pricing, some of them. Oh, it's crazy. Like it, it, yeah. it, it looks, it looks like, um, it looks completely bonkers when you, when you look at it from the outside and like, why are you, uh, like, is this company running it this way? And you look at the software and like, why is it done this way? Uh, but then like, I've also talked to a bunch of people that were actually building ERPs. And then one thing that they absolutely hate is when their customers um, from this or this niche are asking them about doing this for a module, because for them it's just pure headache. Um, because it doesn't necessarily mean that the people that are bought this ERP for the strawberry stuff uh, the feature that they're gonna, uh, they're gonna build yeah. will be translatable to the other's customer. So then they have to kind of um, balance this this thing out. And what happens is that they're gonna make a very average module, and then no one will be happy. But the thing will be done. Um, so they actually much prefer partnering up with another outside software and then just making the connection. And then a lot of the ERP system are kind of transitioning toward that mode of operation. Yeah. Uh, instead of like having to deal with like all of these ad hoc uh, type of uh, of requests, and now when you look at this in, in this sense more economically, it makes sense. They don't make that much money from these requests, and they actually lose yeah. that in the in the customer support. Um, it's much better if the customers are happy, and then you have to do nothing but to provide an API to whatever company that uh, made that customer happy. And that's why we are working on partnerships as well, because, you know, there's a need for demand sensing, which is what we're talking about. But uh, the companies that are the ERPs, they have so many other priorities because they're trying to build like a whole backbone for the organization, which is why I don't take away the fact that the ERPs work amazing 
for a lot of foundational, like you said, it is the foundation. So again, I don't think either of us were taking away from the importance of that foundation. We're just saying when it comes to, you know, AI forecasting or demand sensing, that's just not their priority because they have to do so many other things. Uh, So that's where we come in. And obviously that's why integrations are important. Love it. Um, To go back to um, um, the upscaling topic, um, like if you, like uh, we're talking to a bunch of people that are in supply chain right now. Um, What are the core topic you think that they should like kind of master in order to be able to understand these, uh, these models and just to be able to understand the opportunity that a good demand forecasting tool uh, give them. So in terms for demand forecasting specifically, the Institute of Business Forecasting has some uh, tools and training on um, different methods of statistical forecasting, and they go through the foundations behind machine learning. So they maybe don't get into machine learning and AI, but they cover the foundations that okay. are very important. So I'd say for forecasting, that's a resource I would go to, but it dep- every um, domain probably has a different resource. Perfect. I think that's a, um, it's a good starting point. Like uh, I, Because I've been teaching machine learning to a bunch of people also for a while. And one thing you don't want someone is completely lose them in the weeds of it. Um, I, I usually start the curriculum yeah. with anyone to go from the top and then go down afterward if they need to. But never, never, never to start from the bottom and then just throw them into like a linear algebra course for like three months and, and lose them. And especially um, now, I think though we need to regroup in two months or three months because just like we talked about flexibility in other fields, this field is evolving so rapidly yeah. that I don't even know what at this point is going to be foundational and what types of skills we're going to need. I know we needed machine learning as a skill set, and I was going to say um, functional expertise. So machine learning for forecasting is really powerful. Machine learning for supply chain, like getting um, the right vertical that you're in. But now with AI, it's changing so rapidly that we might have a different answer in a few months. Yeah, yeah, I do agree here. Um, and like, um, it, it, it do create some new paradigm shift in ways of understanding like the, how to tackle different problem. Um, like if we just talk about Gen AI, for instance, like two, three yeah. years ago, that type of motion of just like jamming stuff onto an LLM and then getting something out and then just doing that mo- like it didn't really exist uh, that much. But then we started with code and then you could do that and it spit out like the actual code that you need because it saw a lot of it. Now this motion exists. And it's uh, it's it can be used and composed in various various different ways, uh, but I do agree. Like uh, um, you have to stay flexible. One thing though that I've uh, realized um, by doing a lot of this is that it's not really hard to catch up if you already are invested in some form uh, uh, in this topic. So, for example, if you already did machine learning for whatever it is, like uh, even like machine learning for molecular biology, this all of these skills are really transferable. Because it's really like the, the mindset and the way you're thinking about it. important. That's the important part. The rest. Yeah. Having the, like understanding that underlyingly a lot of it is statistical modeling. Yeah. Um, and if you understand the statistical models, which a lot of forecasters and planners really, that's what 
uh, their bread and butter is, then you'll yeah. understand machine learning. Yeah. My what I am seeing more of though is the generative AI, which you don't necessarily need to have a machine learning background or a statistical forecasting background or a forecasting background to use. <laughs> no background. Like you don't need all. any background. You don't need any math, science, like you don't need anything. So yeah. I'm not sure. That's why I'm saying. I don't know how it will evolve in the sense that I don't know. No one really knows what skills exactly we're going to be needing in order to develop, um, new models. But yeah. I think for forecasting and supply chain, a lot of it will still be uh, machine learning based. I, I do believe um, too on that front, um, especially since like the, you don't you don't have that much barrier for like error or creativity in that type of setting. Like if we're talking Gen AI, it usually thrive more when you have like this kind of error bar that you can have. But in demand forecasting, I think that's not uh, the case. Um, cool, perfect. Um, yeah, exactly. It's not like creativity. It's literally math underlying. So <laughs> I don't opposite. know if I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it'll still touch the yeah. field, and and we we are it using works. generative AI to process the data, yes, like to it. understand different pieces of the data that we're using because we're yeah. using a lot of unstructured social media data. So for us, it is um, useful and important, but um, we're still looking at statistics and statistical modeling just exactly. as much. Yeah, that's what I was uh, I was about to say. You can use that chunk um, in the pre the processing stage so that you can ingest a lot of like uh, natural language yeah. and then actually make something out of it that is digestible for your actual model that cannot have uh, that much uh, uh, creativity, but will use like uh, whatever your yeah. your other model is 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 having. That's the right um, summary, exactly. If, uh, <laughs> We geeked up a bit too much on that, <laughs> uh, but uh, on the on your background, um, you're a data scientist. Um, uh, if we touch just a bit more on that upskilling uh, thing, like what your learning, what, what did your learning path look like uh, from like not knowing that much to actually be at the position that you are right now, where you can actually make a, uh, have, a have a good good understanding of demand forecasting. It's really a lot of pieces, but I think it starts with finding a starting point. That's the biggest piece of advice. So uh, there's so many resources out there, but choosing one or two resources, um, hopefully your organization has some starting points for you. And I think more and more organizations are having training, but just finding your one starting point and spending a couple months with just that starting point. For me, it was the Python side like I knew foundationally that's the first part I already had a statistics background so I had that side of it but I the coding side was what I had to learn first yeah. um so I started there and just basically once you lay a foundation you just keep growing on it most people the biggest challenge is knowing where to start yeah yeah that's it I think uh I think you 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 nailed it pretty well um it's uh it's really intuitive. It's because like there's so many niche and there's so many different um, type of uh, machine learning that you can use and whatnot, depending on the problem. There's just no way you're going to learn all of it in, yeah. uh, like, uh, in a structured fashion until you built up to knowing it all in order to do the stuff. Um, that's what I was saying at the beginning. And uh, that's why I liked your answer about like, just, just do that course and know the basics just for, for domain forecasting 
And that's it. That's the start. Go there. If you start from top and exactly what you're trying to, to do, like that, be, be better at demand forecasting using AI, just start there. Don't try to start from the bottom and then try to learn like... Yeah, don't try to learn everything. Just try to learn. But I think sticking to one or two resources that work well for you, like maybe it's a Udemy course on AI and demand forecasting. It depends where you want to start and what you want to learn. Some people want to learn purely coding. Some people want to learn, you know, data visualization. And some people want to learn AI and demand forecasting. Like find, decide what you want and then stick to one resource end to end. At least that's what works well for me. I like to kind of find a place, finish one good learning resource, and then explore from there. Yeah. And I think you need to get to push yourself to the point um, where you can actually do something um, versus just being passive and and, uh, getting that information. I think that's the point where you realize, okay, but the motion is this, and then you're able to to make it click the, the actual motion of machine learning just like the motion of yeah. coding yep. just like the motion of like doing yeah. stats like the, it's like a it, language it's like exactly just... it's like a way of thinking about the problem and then you now you understand that it has this shape there's this thing in the middle right and then you're gonna entrain this thing by giving it stuff and then you're gonna ask it to like predict this other stuff that it doesn't see and then you make this thing a bit better because you're fine-tuning it then you take that thing and then you put it where you want actually to to where you don't know the stuff that you have at the end and then you can retrain it and blah blah, blah. but like that motion is not the same uh, motion you do when you're coding something without machine learning like when you're actually coding like step by step uh, it's a different type of uh, metal frame um but like you just have to push yeah. yourself to get something out where you actually did the whole motion and if you're able to do that then that's kind of it. Like after that, you can learn any uh, sub field of machine learning. Yeah, you can go deeper into you each go, one. You, you just need to deeper, understand one take area the, first. Whatever context and whatever um, uh, uh, utility you want to get out of it, and you're going to be able to figure it out because you saw the whole motion. And it's, it's strange because it's such a big field, but it's always kind of the same, right? Uh, no matter what type of uh, uh, machine learning. It's like cooking, right? Like once you learn one recipe, okay, it's not what you can learn baking or you can learn like cooking. But once you do one, you know, baking activity end to end, then you kind of understand it and then you copy it multiple times. But the first time you do it, you're going to be like, how do I do this? How do I even have measuring cups? Like, what do I have? Yeah. So yeah, but then the second recipe will become easier and easier. But I do think it's up to leaders at organizations to help uh, people that are excited about learning new things to to find a starting point. Yeah. And I think that's where there is a lot of challenge. And of course, it's really hard to, it's such a growing field. It's evolving every day. So it's hard to find a starting point. But I think leaders are really excited about bringing AI and upskilling their teams. And we're seeing more and more of that because they want their teams to have that um, knowledge. So leaders at your organization are, you know, we're all working to give people a starting point. And I don't know if Axia has training modules as well, but I know there's more and more training um, out yeah. there. Yeah, it, there is. Um, and uh, um, 
It's absolutely crucial. Uh, I, 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 you're, you're totally right. I was talking to someone um, that was at Rio Tinto and um, that was actually upskilling her, herself with the help of the company. Um, and it's fantastic because like you're developing that capability internally. And then this person is able to like show the other person how things are done. And then it's just organically, you're able to have like a, a better prepared uh, um, organization. And with these type of skills, the, the other thing is that um, if you look at uh, uh, like uh, historically where the data scientists and like the, those type of people are coming from, like the machine learning engineer and whatnot, there was no stream of machine learning uh, yeah, in, uh, exactly. in university. It's a bunch of people <laughs> that were doing PhD on, on, and masters on, in weird stuff. Like they were studying. And then it got called like machine learning later. <laughs> yeah, or exactly. like data science. Like what is data science? I that's don't know. It. I just did statistics and then I learned how to code and you put those two together and, and that's data science. You're, you're but I'm not, people don't. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I, organizations and, and leaders are really excited to get more and more people upskilled. And I know quite a bit of organizations now who are using internal talent because it's also hard to get, you know, talent in AI and demand forecasting. So, you know, Let's train people that are already excited to learn it. Beautifully said. So uh, to kind of end this podcast, um, uh, do you have a, any emerging trends or um, technology that you see that are, are promising to uh, enhance the, uh, the potential of demand forecasting? I think we touched a bit on some. Can you like recap all of this? Um, yeah, as I said, we're seeing a large shift um, in consumer preferences moving faster in, in we're seeing, you know, monthly and weekly shifting preferences. So tools that can really uh, provide flexibility are what we're seeing more of uh, tools and capabilities in, again, understanding what's happening in the consumer market and how that impacts our products and our um, internal plans. Perfect. Fantastic. I think that summarizes it um, pretty well. Um, Tally, that was amazing. I think there's a lot of good nuggets uh, in there of information. Um, where can people uh, reach out to you if they want to learn more about them and forecasting? Yeah, so you can reach me at uh, on LinkedIn, Tally Remenick. That's the best way to reach me. But you can also send me an email at tally.remenick at granularity.ca. Perfect. And I'm I'll, sure we'll include it below as well. I, I will include it below. No worries about it. So, uh, Tali, thank you very much for this podcast. It was uh, it was pretty fun. Uh, we went into a few tangents, but I think it was uh, all uh, worth it. Um, and this was the Data Driven Supply Chain Podcast uh, with Tali Remnick.